That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Lindsay Zarniak, and my dilemma is when is it actually acceptable to put up your Christmas decor? Because each year I get a little bit more crazy. I have an obsession with Christmas lights and not just in my home, outside my home, you know, on trees, on furniture. I just love lights and I love pine cones and their smell (laughs) and anything that reminds me of Christmas. So... I annoy my family because I will sometimes put things up really early and I'm just wondering if it's by mid-November, if that's too early or if maybe I get a pass just because it's sparkly and maybe it's a reflection of um, one side of my personality. So we've actually been talking about this a lot around these parts and I've decided whatever brings you joy is the way to go because it was snowing on Halloween here, like inches of snow sitting on the ground, freezing cold, needed hat and gloves on October 31st. And when it gets cold like that, I say all bets are off. Whatever you got to do to get you through what is basically five months of winter in places like Chicago, just go ahead and do it. And I get that some people want to honor Thanksgiving, quote unquote, and not skip ahead. But how exactly do you decorate for Thanksgiving in a way that brings joy to the house for the entire month that you have to kill between Halloween and Christmas? You get a throw pillow that says thankful on it. Maybe some gourds on your dining room table. Maybe a couple turkey drawings made out of a hand that your kiddos did at school. That's it. The bottom line is, it may not be right, but it's a lot tougher to commodify Thanksgiving. So stores just skip right ahead to Christmas, and they've got all the bright lights and the beautiful displays taunting you every day as you return to your dark home in your one thankful throw pillow. So don't fight it. Just lean in to all of the retail splendor and just start celebrating Christmas whenever the hell you want. The commish has spoken. This week, we have two guests. Lindsay Zarniak, NFL sideline reporter for Fox, studio host for Fox Sports NASCAR coverage, who anchored the World Series coverage for WRC in D.C. and is also working on a podcast with Max Scherzer, former ESPNer. She joins us to talk about the Nats World Series run, how to balance a family with two parents in media, what it was like working with George Michael of the sports machine, not father figure. And also we talk about Bill Murray. After Lindsay, stay tuned for a catch-up with another former ESPNer and Nats fan who we've had on the pod before, the hilarious Reese Waters. He tells some great stories from the red carpet of Dave Chappelle's Mark Twain Prize, what it's like in D.C. when your teams actually win stuff, and uh, tells us about his news gig and how he's occasionally in costume tossing the serious stories. Uh, it was great to catch up with him, so make sure you stick around for that. That's what she said. So this is awesome because even though I've had Lindsay on my uh, radio show, Spain and Company, to talk about the World Series stuff lately, we haven't gotten to chat in forever. And when I started first doing Sports Centers at ESPN, it was almost always Lindsay's show that I was on. And from across <laughs> the world, I guess just the country, I always just felt so comfortable chatting with you. You made it very easy for me to like learn how to do the back and forth on Sports Center and and have fun with it. So it's so great to get to, to chat with you again. Oh, that's so nice. No, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I, it's funny because I remember that. I specifically, for some reason, remember being mic'd up and like talking to you while you were getting mic'd um, before the show started. And I guess at that point, it would have been the six o'clock sports center. But it yeah. was, yeah. And I remember being like, whoa, 
this is awesome that we have Sarah because you were, to me, like you were such an expert in what you were covering. And it was just, it was awesome. It was like a breath of fresh air and really fun. And so it's so fun to see, like, you know, obviously you were a big deal then, but to see like all that you're doing now, I can't keep up. But it's Uh, It's so awesome. That is really nice. Um, yeah, and I, I miss getting to uh, chat with you across across the lines. Um, you're super busy now, and we're going to get into why you're so busy right now, and this week is it's busy for you. Um, but as usual, we're going to start at the beginning. You were born in Pennsylvania, but you moved to Northern Virginia when you were five. So would you consider yourself a Virginian? Is that where all the memories are? Yeah, I would say like the Northern Virginia area, so right outside of D.C. I mean, my extended relatives are all outside of Pittsburgh, and so we go there a lot because that's where everyone outside of my immediate family really is. Um, but, yeah, so Northern Virginia is where I – it's basically where I hail from. So that's why when I went back and worked in Washington, D.C., that, that was really – it's like working in your hometown. Yeah. Um, which was awesome. Yeah. And your dad um, worked for the sports department – of a newspaper in DC forever. Uh, and, and that's kind of his, what he was doing as you were growing up in your formative years, learning about presumably journalism and sports and stuff from him. Yeah. So he went to USA today when the paper started. So in 82, right. And he, he had been covering politics in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I was five. My brother had just been born and my dad took a job. So we all moved to Virginia from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, he took a job to do horse racing there and then to also cover NFL. So he started at the paper reporting on sports and the horse racing thing was really, it's, it's interesting to me now because we both have like similar passions, I think for him, horse racing and me NASCAR. And there are ways that we talk about those sports that are so it's very similar. Like he loved being at the barns early in the morning and loved just every nuance of like, you know, being around the trainers and that lifestyle and just experiencing that and making those relationships. And for me, like when I talk to him or anyone really about the the stuff that I love about NASCAR, I was hooked early on just by being like at the track, you know, and especially in the morning um, and that kind of thing, like as the track is waking up and you've got the smells and the, right. you know, you hear, it's just crazy. But anyway, so he, yeah, he started doing that. And then, um, so growing up, I would always remember him. He traveled a lot, you know, but he would have these stories of, you know, covering games and all this stuff. And my mom was so involved. She was a teacher and she was like the best mom ever. And, um, but my dad, like it was kind of this romanticized, wow, like what, what's he doing? And then he eventually, transition to um to like you know become a managing editor and all that stuff and so kind of it's kind of run parallel um a little bit for my career and I guess that's why yeah it was kind of osmosis in a weird way you've gotten into so many of those things so growing up you played lacrosse and field hockey in high school were you also a big fan of the sports around you or are you more interested in playing them I was more interested in playing. I was terrible at field hockey, (laughs) but it was so much fun. Like I have so much respect for anyone right now that plays field hockey, because I think that's one of the most physical sports that you can play seriously. Um, But it was so much fun. All we get is a mouth guard and shin guards. And I got my nose broken. I got my finger broken, like just countless getting smacked with sticks. And so I, because, I mean, I choose to believe that it was because they saw a talent in me. I'm thinking it was probably the opposite, but they asked <laughs> me to be goalie. 
So I was goalie and I just like the, the sprints we had to do with those goalie pads. It's uh, still like, it still haunts me. I mean, because I can still hear my coach's voice saying like, get there, get there. And we had to run suicide drills. And it was like those sprints, you know, everyone's finished and they're huffing and puffing. And here come the two goalies, like me and Amanda, I swear. And it took us like 10 more minutes to get across the finish. Line. It was awful. Anyway, um, <laughs> but lacrosse is really fun. Yeah. So I, but I think I much more enjoyed I really loved playing sports. I did care about what was going on around me, but it wasn't something that I have always been really interested in, like the storylines of the teams or the game, you know? And I think that for me somewhere along the line, because I I started out in news when I was going to do TV and I was lucky enough to kind of be hit on the head and have this really random happening occur where I met some people that were doing sports in Miami. And that's when I transitioned into sports and, um, it allowed me to get into it in a way that was like through the storytelling of it. Cause I was doing a show about the Miami dolphins off the field. And additionally, I was the sports anchor also at the station in Miami. Um, so it was kind of an entry point into it. That was more from a place of the storytelling, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people get into it that way for sure. Um, so when you were mm-hmm. at James Madison, you majored in online journalism, which I did not think existed Back in that day, it, not that no, it was no, that no. long yeah, ago, it was but media arts and design. It wasn't okay. online. I was going to say, I read that, and I was, I read that on the interwebs. I read it online, and I was like, I don't know if that was like a, a big enough thing at that point. Um, okay, so, but you knew you wanted to go into journalism, um, you know, right off the bat. I thought so. I mean, I thought I thought it it either was going to be journalism or art because art was my minor and I loved, I loved drawing and that kind of thing. And so I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe it's animation, maybe blah, blah, blah. So like that was kind of where my head is or writing. Like I was very into creative writing. So I did, I wasn't sure that until my practicum, we had a practicum where um, we basically had to put on a TV show and we had to assume the role of every type of role that would go along with producing a TV show. And the day that it was my turn to host, I just, fell in love with it. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. This does not feel like work. Like I, and I knew because I was like blowing off parties with my friends to work on segments for the TV show. You know what I mean? So that's kind of where it really clicked. And I was like, Oh, this is what, this is what I want to strive to do. But I was, I was doing like the hosting or the entertainment report. Like that's more of the the vein that I was like, okay, this is going to be my lane. Um, so it was funny the way that it transitioned to sports and how it's not that different at all. You know, what was your relationship like with your dad in terms of, um, I think for a lot of people, it, it would totally be a dream to follow in their footsteps and do the same job and be inspired by their work. And for other people, it would be incredibly pressure filled to, to try mm-hmm. to do that. What was, what was that feeling for you as you realized you were starting to do some of the same things? Well, it was kind of, I mean, I guess in some aspects it felt different because it was TV, but I've always felt that he is like the gold standard in integrity and journalism in terms of like just old school journalism. And so he has always been the person that like, I mean, I still call him and, and will ask him, I mean, literally I was doing it this weekend, you know? And so all along the way, I, I feel like, like when I was in high school, he used to edit my papers and I would be like oh this (laughs) sucks because like my mom is always really good at that too but my dad would like rip it apart and be like error error like he would just 
And I, I just, I remember being like, this is so annoying. And I was right in that stage where your parents end up not being so cool for a stint anyway. And I was like, this is the worst thing ever. And then when, you know, when I finally got into this job, it was like, yeah, it was pressure. I mean, it, at times it's been pressure filled. I did an internship with his paper um, during the Olympics. And like, that's, you know, you're there and you just want to not mess up and do a good job, that kind of thing. But then professionally, like once I got into it, I feel like I've more used him just as a constant resource and a measuring stick really of like, hey, what do you think about this? And here's this scenario. So he's always, I mean, he's been so instrumental in that regard. And even if it's like, hey, here's this story, what do you think about this? Or here's something that I wrote. Um, But more for like, hey, dad, this is the interview I'm trying to do. Here's what this person has like, even just like the nuances of it, like the getting the interview, the, that kind of thing, you know, like, what would you do? How would you handle this? Would you keep reaching out? Would you be a pain in the ass? Or do you like (laughs) drop it and give him a breath? You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. And so he was the person that I was having this massive dilemma with game seven of the world series because I had followed this Nationals World Series trip like through every game and then they went in Houston game six and I'm like, oh my God, I cannot not be there, right? But my kids had all this stuff Halloween morning at school, you know, like all this stuff. They both had like two different activities and it like broke my heart because I'm like, I can't, I don't want to miss it. It's my son's first stint in kindergarten, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I physically cannot sit in my house and watch game seven. If the Nationals (laughs) win, it will break me. Do you know what I mean? I was like, and you know, you do know what I mean. I'm like, I will, I, I like, I won't be able to smile with my family. I will just be crying because I'm not there, you know? Right. Um, And I know that's, I know how that sounds. That sounds awful. It sounds like, no, I 100% get it. (laughs) I'm like, dad, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get anything out of this. There's no one technically that I'm working for. If I go, I will be doing this interview. Hopefully that's going to contribute to this podcast I'm doing, but I don't know. And my dad finally was just like, you just need to shut up and get on the plane. He yeah. just go. He's like, because, and I was like giving him reasons to tell me no. I was like, no, you know what, dad, I'm exhausted. I'm like, right. no, this is so stupid. And you're right. I'm, and he's like, you need to just go. You need and I'm sure you don't plane. regret it. Oh, it was the best decision I've made in the past yeah. month. Like, no, <laughs> right, there was, exactly. I mean, just thank God, like, thank God, you know, and my dad, yep. I feel like, so just to give that really long drawn out story of like, that's the way that I feel like he really um, helped me. And he was right. He was right. And then it's like, you know, you're on the field after. And I was just like, right. thank God that this is the way that it worked out. Well, let's, we'll you get know? back to the world series in a minute. I want to, I want to get back to you and sort of your path, because before you were able to get the job in the D.C. area, you did you did an internship there while you were in college, but you actually had to go down to Jacksonville, Florida, did a couple mm-hmm. jobs for different places there and the Speed Channel and stuff. Um, but tell me about getting the call for the George Michael sports machine, because even though I was not a diehard sports fan the way I am now when I was a kid, because my parents weren't really into it, everybody remembers mm-hmm. the George Michael sports machine. That was the thing. Uh, it's so funny. Um yeah, because it's like people like really do or people are like, who is it? That singer, George Michael. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, so I was working in Miami and I was um, at the same time I was doing some NASCAR. His uh, son-in-law was watching racing and he saw me reporting and they had an opening. So George called me when I was during the week. I was waiting for a baseball player that had just signed with the Marlins. It was Tar- uh, Carlos Delgado. I was at the airport. 
and we were waiting for him to get off his plane in Fort Lauderdale. And George called, and he had my cell phone, so he just called me. And I assumed that he wanted video of Carlos Delgado, or it was something right. like that. And George is like, he's like, Zodiac, hi, this is George Michael, you know, like so <laughs> official. And he was like, call, call me back, call me back. So long story short, he ended up calling me, and it became this like few-week session of courting, right, where he was like, we, we want to get you up here. We want you to come meet us. The Super Bowl was in Jacksonville that year, so he had me go up to Jacksonville to meet the team and talk to him, and that was part of, like, their interview process. And he offered me the job, and then I turned it down. And to this day, that is the biggest lesson, hands down, for me <laughs> in, my, in my career to this point because I turned it down, I said no, and it was because I was listening to a lot of people. I was, you know, Miami was... Miami. And I'm like, you know, this sounds amazing. It would basically be like, I'm going home to work for him. But I also just felt like, yeah, but Miami's so great. And, you know, they've got the heat and the Marlins, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was like my agents, I remember, they didn't feel like I should go. Like, I think people felt like, oh, if you go work for George, he's very controlling. He won't be able to do this stuff on the side anymore. He probably won't let you do NASCAR. He probably won't let you do this stuff you're doing. I was starting to do some work for NBC sports at the time. So I really got scared off. And so I turned it down and then it was like a big thing because he had spent all this time <laughs> trying to recruit me, you know, yeah. and I could not sleep for like two weeks. And it was like the, it was the weirdest thing. I knew I had screwed up and knew that I really wanted to take the job. And it was like, it was such a lesson in, I always said like, I don't know what my gut is. I never, it's always hard for me to figure out like, what is your actual gut? And that was like, that was it. That was the one time that I was like, oh, so I kind of just like sucked it up and was doing my job. And then it was eating on me so bad. I was like, I really want to see if this is possible. Like if I can go back and just see if this job's open. And this was like two or three weeks later. And I remember like my dad was like, don't do it. That's so <laughs> unprofessional. It will never be open, blah, blah, blah. And I had a couple people at the station. There was one guy in particular at the station in Miami, Tony, who was super helpful. And he was like, if you feel really strongly that you really will go all in and want that job, you call him, but do you need to be prepared for anything on the other end of that phone? So I remember I was at this car wash in Miami and I was like, oh, I called him and I, I got a voicemail and I was just like, George, I messed up. If it's still available, I would love to have a job. And he, so it was a voicemail, which was good. But then he called back and he gave me a lot of grief, but he still hired me. <laughs> and it's like, hands down, it was the best move of my career. And mostly because he was such a hard ass in a really good way, but like in a coach way, you know, like he yeah. scared the heck out of you. Not like you were ever fearful of anything, but just he yeah, was Yeah, like you wanted that. to live up to his standard. Totally. And the way that he did his business down to the way that he treated the security guards and everyone at the stadiums, like it was such a great example and a lesson. Like he was just, he did stuff behind the scenes for people that I'm still hearing about that no one had any idea and it was never intended to be something that people knew, you know, and he was, um, that he did like the, the way that he did certain things, he would not let us go interview someone and ask more than six questions. I mean, truly, like you would get in trouble yelled at if you asked more than that. And like, I'm talking like a big interview, like say LeBron James today, he would hold that same standard because he felt like you were being disrespectful to 
the athletes, you know, and that mm. in their time. And he always wanted them to like, want you to come back. I mean, I was just at the world series. I was hearing stories about him. It was back in the day when he could still do this, but like the super bowl would be over and he would send a golf cart to the other side of the field to pick up like one of the stars of the game and bring them to his set, you know, and like just little stuff like that. That is, I feel like, unfortunately it's like, it's a different world today, you know? And so everything has heightened so much that it's like that stuff can't, you can't necessarily do that, but it was really a great experience and boot camp in a way, you know, yeah. for how to do the job. You got back to DC too, which was huge. Yeah, it was. And I think, you know, if I'm being honest, like at first, that was not the attractive part of that role for me because, you know, like when you're young and you're starting out and you're in this industry, which can be really challenging, but it can also be really exhilarating. Like I was still on that swing of like, I'm moving every two years. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to end up? You know, like you're kind of like waiting for the next opportunity because that's the nature of it. And I felt like that was the first time that I was going to have to commit to more than two years somewhere, but also for some weird reason, like going back home. Yeah, it was nice to be able to see my family, but I think I kind of looked at that like is weird. I was like looking at that like I wasn't like projecting up, right? Because it was like, oh, you're going home. I don't know. I know like now I know that's so crazy and that's like something for a therapist, but that's how (laughs) I felt. It's so weird. Well, if you're out pursuing this crazy dream, it feels more like, wild and ambitious to be running around in different places instead of being home, even if home is actually a step up in the direction that you want to go. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I didn't realize how much of a step up it was going to be, but like when I got there and when we started working together, it was the whole thing about his high standard, but also the way that George introduced me like really mattered. He really, and I think about that a lot too. Now it's like, if there's someone that's working for you or working with you, he really took the time to make sure that that like coaches or owners that they were like, Hey, this is Lindsay. She's working for me. I think he did that more than other maybe employers do, you know, in our industry. And so that like put me in a different position, I think out of the gate a little bit. And I'm really grateful for that because it was like instantly I was going to cover the Redskins with him and I was, you know, like in private conversations with around them, at least with him and coach Gibbs and him and Greg Williams. And it was like, he put me in these positions where I was really just watching and observing and learning and figuring out, okay, this is, you know, you're kind of just included. And so that made a big difference in the way that I think I was able to move forward because it was also like a different kind of confidence. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring can be a slow process. You guys know this. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It actually finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. 
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So you spend six years at WRC TV in Washington, D.C., and you know, you're, you're covering a lot of the teams that you grew up around. What happens when you get the call for ESPN? Because it was the same year that you got married too, right? To a colleague. Uh, in DC. So how do you, how do you decide, yes, I'm going to pick up and move and take a new gig at ESPN. Um, and how do I reconcile this with, you know, family and life and everything else I've, I've rooted down in? It was just sort of this weird parallel with my husband too, because we were getting married in October. Both of our contracts were up at the same time. And so that was a key in the whole thing, because I think it would have played out differently if that had not been the situation. So I had a really great opportunity from Turner that was on the table and that would have been in Atlanta. And then my station I was working for in Washington was great about trying to, to make it attractive for me to stay. But then ESPN, that was one of the ones that came up. I remember like later and I was like, Hmm. And it was really attractive to me because of what it was, but also I loved the, the thought of, what ESPN also offered just because of the variety of what you could do. Right. And then they were talking a lot about like, Oh, there's ABC and that's a component and maybe, and I've still always had that interest of like the human interesty side of things. I do care about that too. And I was like, maybe that would be an opportunity also to do some stories for them. And so my husband was, they were really recruiting him also hard for MSNBC at the time, which was up in New York and also in D.C. where we were. So it became kind of this conversation and decision point of like, what are we going to do? You know, and that's another time when in my life that in my situation with an agent, like that agent was great, but he was really pushing hard for Atlanta. And I was just like, look, that opportunity at that point didn't necessarily feel like the one that made the most sense for me. But I think, I don't know, like I really, I learned how to listen to myself a lot in that one. And at the end of the day, I was like, no, like this is the, that's the direction I need to go. I need to do Um, I want to do ESPN. And so that's kind of how it came to be. So we moved in August and then we um, got married in October. And so we moved and sometime around the end of August, September, I was like, what the hell have I done? Like, why am I doing this? And I'm just being totally honest. And it's because we moved from downtown Washington where it was amazing living right downtown than to go live in the suburbs in Connecticut, which is beautiful. It really is, but it's so different. It's beautiful. And we didn't know anyone. And I was working on Highlight Express, which I don't know if you remember what that was, but it was a highlight show they used to have overnights, which is where people started. And, you know, they, they were great at ESPN. They were, I was really excited to go because of what I knew their hopes were. And I just needed to start out here. And then it was going to... I was going to get worked in to figure out like what the sports center opportunity would be, but it was really hard. It was really hard. And Melvin was working like overnight weird hours and getting, we always joke about this one story that he got sent on to Vermont and I might've been on my bathroom floor. Like you can't go. because (laughs) It was like the first time we had a freaking weekend together. And I'm like, I can't do this in this town with, I'm working overnight. I don't feel like anyone is seeing what I'm doing. You mean lovely Bristol? (laughs) Yes. Like there were no, there was no evidence anyone was watching. There was like, all all I had was like the people that I was working with were truly amazing. And like Cole Wright is someone that I will always love because I feel like he and I bonded so much over that. But so it was really hard. It was like, that was the time that I was, and 
you know, I had left Washington, which is, it was just this wonderful, warm hug of like love in DC. And I just, that was like really the first time that I was like, Oh my God, what? So it got, yeah. it got markedly better. Yeah. Markedly better. I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. So you're, you're at ESPN for six years. Tell me now about the end. That's the beginning. Now it's the end. And, uh, was, was your husband still working in New York and was the timing, uh, again, something where you both could figure out what, what comes next? First of all, so what happened was after the Highlight Express, I had an opportunity, you know, it happened like they said it would. And I had an opportunity to fill in on the Morning Sports Center, which was amazing. And I loved it. And so that dark period that I'm talking about probably only lasted like a month or two. But I knew that it was going to get better. And it turned out to be like one of the best growing experiences, I think, not only for me, but for me and my husband. And like we do now look back at that Vermont trip and we like laugh because we're like, oh, my God, thank God. Like if we made it through that, you know, it really did force us to get stronger, like grow together in a way that was really helpful, I think, especially for like what we're doing now, you know. So anyway, so I did the mornings a lot and then I got the opportunity to do the six o'clock sports center. And the beauty of that was that would have been good by itself. No question. It was amazing. But that's when they also decided to make it sports center on the road. And that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Like I loved doing my show on the road from the NBA finals and from, you know, the college championship. And it was just so cool. And that was so in my wheelhouse of like what I love. I love being at the event and I love telling the stories and anchoring. So that was like my happy place. So the end was, yeah, kind of weird and unexpected and not like it was just, the fit and the way they were changing things, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I didn't feel like it was something that I should be doing at that point. And I didn't, it was, you know, that's like a whole different story, but yeah. So my husband still was working at NBC and after I left ESPN is when stuff happened with him so that he got more of a, a weekday kind of highlighted schedule. And that's been really great. And it's allowed me to do this new work with, Fox, but also to do things on the side, which for me has been really paramount because there's always been this itch of like producing some of my own stuff and being able to do more, you know, it's still yeah. like that it, in a weird way. It allows me to, to like satisfy that journalistic itch. That's still the stuff that like my dad and I talked about way back when, when it's like, you know, telling stories that you really want to tell and figuring out how to get so this people to agree to do it. Yeah. Yeah, this is, a, this is like a tough gig yeah. for um, for a family when one person has a gig in media, right? There's a lot of travel and the hours are weird and the expectation of, of and demands of the work is a lot. Uh, but there's two of you, right, with your husband. Over the years, has it been a real conversation about, you know, which job takes priority when it comes to something happens with the kids? Or whose schedule do we put the priority on in terms of being able to get the gig that they need and this is what's required of the other person if they take it. Has that been just a, a constant flowing conversation as the jobs change and the places change? I mean, that would be the mature way to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> we just, you know what? I mean, honestly, the way that stuff has happened for us when I was deciding if I was going to stay at ESPN or leave, like that was really 
not something that it kind of came out of. It, it wasn't like the timing we did. I didn't really expect that. And I didn't expect that I was actually going to find myself saying like, wait a minute, maybe this is actually time to pivot a little bit. Um, so it sort of has been occurring at different times. And then honestly, the way that my husband ended up doing the weekday situation came out of a situation that no one expected at today's show. So everything that's happened has been sort of like a big change has been something that hasn't been us sitting down and saying like, Hey, what do you think I should do in this next contract? Right? Like we've had those conversations, but it's been when they've been kind of forced upon us, not negatively, but just when they've popped up. So I think now, I don't know. I mean, we kind of need to like, it's like you need to hire a freaking couples counselor to live with you because we're trying to figure (laughs) out like, I mean, I'll use the example of the World Series. I don't know what the hell I was doing. Like, I'm, I knew that I was going after and chasing this one podcast episode that I'm doing. But I also, I had an opportunity then to come back and do the work for the station that I worked for with George in D.C. And I am, like, honestly, I've just, that's the coolest thing ever. And I'm so grateful that they did that. And they let me, they, they hired me to come back and do that with the Stanley Cup. And I remember... Like, so that's when we'll have those conversations. Okay, so they want me to do this. I'm going to be gone, obviously, for who knows how long, because we don't know how long the series is going to go. But and I think the nature of what we've been through together has allowed us to just say, okay, we've got our structure in place. We know how the kids are going to be taken care of. Are they coming? Are they not? And we are just going to figure it out. And I think the good thing is we're always, both of us are really, really like, I think champions of one another in go like, just do it. And I remember when the Capitals were in the Stanley cup and it was game five and I had gone back to work for the station. And that night before game five started, I was doing live shots and I looked to my left and ESPN had set up right next to me. And it was Steve Levy who I adore and Barry Melrose who I adore and had worked with for years on the sport, the six o'clock sports center And it was kind of this moment of me feeling like, okay, this is really weird because now I'm here and I'm not there and they're right next to me. But it was also like, wow, if I had still been there, I would be the person talking to them from the studio and I would not like be here at this moment. And that's when they won the the title. Right. So it's just one of those weird things that like gives me goosebumps on several levels because you're just in these places and it's the same exact thing happened to me with the world series. I mean, it really, it was crazy. And so it became a situation where when the nationals lost game five, I was, my head said they're out of it. They're dead. But I knew I was like, no, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go home. They're going to win game six. And then I'm going to have to figure out if I'm going to be an okay mom, if I have to leave. Right. So anyway, but so with the, um, the stuff with Melvin, it's like, it's always tricky. You kind of never know. Um, I will say the other, the thing that's been the hardest for me probably at certain points is, you know, he does news, but there are times too where, the, you know, sports intersects in his world. And so that I have found that it's just super helpful to have someone who is very open, who I can like talk to him about it. And because there are times that it's felt weird or I'm like, damn it, I want to be interviewing so-and-so. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you're just having to like, just chill out. It's all good. All yeah, that, you know, I love that you call him Melvin uh, instead of his first name. That's such a sporty thing to do. I, I used well, to always say that 
I could remember or I could tell if a guy might be interested in me in high school and college because everybody called me Spain. And there was just like a really? couple guys that would call me Sarah. And I think it's because they didn't want to be friend zone. They were like, listen, if I call you Spain, this will be weird if we start dating. So uh, always with the Sarah. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I know. Well, so for us, it's become totally superstitious. Like I cannot call him Craig. And if I do, he's like, what? You know, what? It's so weird. So it's funny. It's a thing. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about the serendipitous nature of uh, your schedule and your being back in D.C. and, uh, you know, doing coverage for WRC and some other places during this great run for Washington sports, the Capitals win and now this Nationals win. Um, so coverage of the World Series. Take everyone behind the scenes. What were you doing? Where were you covering from? What was your job? Um, so I was... I was watching from afar. I was watching them win the, you know, the wild card and then divisional series. And they, somewhere along the line, I really wanted to do a sort of in-depth conversation with Max Scherzer. So that was sort of my starting point of like, I want to be able to do this as a podcast episode down the line. And so I was starting to like plant those seeds. And when they made it to the CS, then, then those conversations started to, to like kind of grow. And so I knew that I was going to be able to go down there for game three in Washington and get a little access with him um, ahead of that game. And also I was working then for WRC because they said after they clinched the um, NLCS, then they were like, well, we should have conversations about you coming back and helping with our coverage. And so that's kind of where it started. And so then during the world series, I was able to, help them out. So I went back there and did that. And then they lost those three games at home. And I was working with them also doing that. And then when they went to Houston, I was not there with them for game six. And then when it was game seven, I was like, that's when I got on the plane. Yeah, and you went. had to make the big and decisions. Yeah. Seeing it from behind the scenes was really awesome because, you know, I was able to, I talked to like Scherzer's wife who was tremendous. And there were things that i like heard and learned just from kind of like being around it that I was like, wow, you know, things about that team. And I just got different perspectives that were, were really, really cool. And then game five though, when he ended up being scratched, I was walking into the ballpark and I got a text on my phone that said Scherzer's not starting. And that was crazy, you know? And I remember being in that press conference and when I walked out, I was like, that's it. Like there's no way that he's going to be able to pitch again this series, you know, um, because of the way that he was describing the pain and all that. So to see him come back and do game seven was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that story was so redeeming. It was one of those ones that like whether, I mean, obviously if you're rooting for the Astros, you don't give a damn, but most people would say that they don't want a series decided because of, of, of a fluke like that. Um, so for him to be able to mm -hmm. come back was, was incredible. Talk about the, the vibe in DC right now, the reactions around town, because like I mentioned, the Capitals, the Mystics won, and now the Nationals. So I think most people would have uh, would have imagined this was not their year after all the other years that they had division winners and a much cleaner regular season. What's been the reaction from everyone? Yeah, it's been crazy. Um, people are so happy. I mean, I, I did parade coverage, which was so fun. Um, and the city was just electric, you know, and it was similar to – very similar to the Capitals. Um, it felt a little bit different to me because it just, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because baseball is more, you know, like more of a everyman sport. I don't know. But um, also, I think to your point, it's like 
they kept looking back to when their record was horrible, you know, and Ryan Zimmerman on the podium said, you know, every game starting in June for us was a playoff game. And so they had to win. They had to win 70. They won 74. Like it's, so the whole story was so incredible and so unbelievable and so grinded out type of story that it was like, it kind of captivated the hearts of fans even more because of that. So the vibe is, it's just awesome, you know, and people have like bought in and they're, I think that the storylines and the things that they were able to learn about each of these players, like along the way has just made fans like that, you know, it's made them that much more relatable and it's really cool. So now it's kind of like, you know, the mayor was up there saying back to back, back to back. Yeah. yeah. Don't, All right. Don't, don't get greedy now. Come on. Don't get yet. greedy. <laughs> right, right, Talk about right. the Bryce thing. I think a lot of people imagined that if this team was going to win it all, Bryce would be front and center. I've been kind of like annoyed by all the people who are negatively saying, oh, I bet he's crying himself to sleep and stuff like that. It felt like he took a big deal elsewhere and the team thrived without him and you know, he's probably bummed about it, but I don't understand the animosity, I guess. Am I missing something? No, I totally agree with you. I think you're right. And I think it was a really huge offer. He went to a team that he thought had a better chance on paper of winning faster, which, you know, on paper, yeah. And the reality is what happened with the Nationals once he was gone, and this is not all on him. This is like the perfect storm for the Nationals team. But I think that the piece that was related to Bryce is the fact that Bryce was a star. Like he was the star of the team. He wasn't the face of the franchise that always belongs to Ryan Zimmerman, but he was the superstar. And no matter what, it was always going to be isolated that way. And that's not all on Bryce. It's on the media. It's on everyone that, um, you know, that views it that way. And I think there's no way that that can't trickle into the locker room. And so I don't think that it's not like players had animosity towards Bryce at all. But what I saw, the difference is this group, They've gelled in a way that, to me, took me right back to Miami in 2003 when I was covering the Marlins, and they unexpectedly made it to the World Series and won, and that was crazy. And this is exactly the same feel. It's like there was something special that you could feel among the guys. Like the the fun was authentic. Sanchez is a huge piece of that. And, you know, talking to Scherzer's wife and Scherzer himself, like they brought him over. You know, he was on the same team with Max in 2012 with Detroit, when they made it to the World Series and lost, but like they knew the way that that guy could bond and could help be the glue that basically like connected the Latinos and and got that culture in the clubhouse and really brought them together. So there was that. But I think with Bryce, it was kind of like, you know, superstars. Sometimes you're treated like superstars in the locker room too, and so it probably felt a little bit different. It felt like there's the team and then there's Bryce, and maybe he had certain allowances. I want to say or like you know like you know how it is. So I just think it took away any sort of isolation from that locker room and helped just yeah. with the togetherness. Uh, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your desert island album? You can only have one. Oh, Eric Church. Ooh, which one? Sinners Like Me. It's my favorite. It was his original. Nice. Uh, Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? (laughs) Oh, my God, that's such a good question. Maybe because sometimes when I feel pressure, I'm really quiet. 
you wouldn't necessarily know that I'm feeling like I'm going to explode. Interesting. And that's helped mm-hmm. because it just allows you to be calm in situations where... Well, like there was one time that I was working as an associate producer at CNN and I had a job to cut video for a shuttle launch and I cut video, but I forgot to include the sound and I got in so much, yeah, I got in so much trouble, but I remember the producer looked at me and she's like, what's your problem? And I like kind of couldn't move, but I felt like I was either going to cry or throw up. I don't know. So I think somehow, sometimes that helps me because it's just like, if I'm in a situation and I feel nervous or I feel really insecure and I'm going to be honest, like that's happened a lot with me in sports. Like when I've walked into rooms at given times and you're the only woman, you're there at like a banquet or an owner's meeting or something. Like I think that has helped me. Like maybe it's a poker face or like a internal, you know? Yeah, for sure. Something. Uh, Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh man. (laughs) Um, that's really hard. My biggest failure. I mean, it's not a failure, not a failure, but maybe, you know, but like when I left ESPN, it wasn't the way that I had necessarily envisioned. So I don't see that as a failure, but in some ways it was like, okay, huh, this is something that didn't really work. Number four, that's not not important. It's not like because it's not like life. You know what I mean? Right. Well, but I think a lot of people who are successful pivot their quote unquote failure or when something doesn't work out into something positive. So it's hard for them to see it as a failure. But in the moment, it feels like it's not what you wanted. Not that applies for sure. Um, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Um, No. This is my brother when I was little. I was really, I was really hoping for a juicy story out of you, Zarniak, on that one. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Miranda Lambert, because really? I really wish I could sing, and I can't. <laughs> and I we would love just love country. to be able to be on stage and sing. Yeah, yeah, I do. God. Uh, number six, yeah. what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my God. Um, once in college, I didn't know what to wear to a function and I, <laughs> I tried on two outfits and I forgot to take the one underneath off. What? <laughs> I was where I should. Oh my God. No, I know this sounds so stupid. Like no one would ever do this, but I had it. It was like a skirt shirt combo. And then I put something over it and then I had forgotten like to take the skirt off underneath. And so I knew I was out of my element. I was nervous. So there was that. And then also one time I was in a NASCAR garage and I was feeling confident finally. And like, I had this hard card credential and this crew member was like, um, Oh, Hey, let me see your picture. And he grabbed my picture and I was like all excited. And I looked down and I had a Sharpie mustache on my picture and I had been walking what? around for like, yep. <laughs> someone had drawn a mustache on me. So that was really embarrassing. So maybe that's like not the most embarrassed, but yeah, it stands out. out. You remember it. Yeah. yeah. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I think I would like to be a little more patient with myself sometimes. Like, I think that's something that just eats away at me a little bit is like, I, if I feel like there's a situation and it's a missed opportunity, or if I feel like, like I, I get impatient with myself. Number eight, if you could be the commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Siesta. Ah. Everyone would have to have a siesta for sure. And it would be between the hours of 3.30 and 4.30. (laughs) I love it. I'm in. You're you're hired. (laughs) Good. Uh, Good. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? God, I wonder what kind of responses you get from this. Um, 
I love scary movies. And I think that it probably was one time when I was watching a scary movie probably is what, because that's what I do. Like we watch them and then I scare myself and then I have to sleep with the lights on for like four days. <laughs> Number 10, uh, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Fabulous. <laughs> um, smart. Kind. I mean, those are boring, but that's no, I, I would probably change fabulous, but I'm not sure. You know, I just think, <laughs> I think at the end of the day to be, I don't know. And like confident, I think that that like, as I get older, that to me is like, you know, it's really important. I think just being yeah. comfortable in your own skin and confident, you know? So, but I do think, and now that I have kids, it's like, kindness is huge. I think for anybody being humble is huge, you know, like seriously, because that's something that, well, my son likes to say that he's better at football than I'm not even going to say. <laughs> I'm like, you have to be humble. You have to be. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Finally, the bonus question, who would you recommend no. that I have on this podcast? Who's someone I should talk to that's interesting? Oh, that's a really good question. I like that. I like that a lot. I think you should do, hold on. Have you done Bill Murray? No, um, I would love to, but I, I don't know if you're aware that he has like a secret number where you leave a voicemail if you're interested in having him in your movie and then maybe he'll call you back. So like he's a tough get, even though I know people who know him, including his brother. <laughs> um, but, but I could certainly try. I'll tell you a quick Bill Murray story. The one time I interviewed him. Now I've met him a bunch of times. No, I've interviewed him twice. Once on SportsCenter. Uh, on a rooftop when the Cubs were in the playoffs. And he was pretty cool then. Um, but he's kind of a moody well, guy. So I was hard. there with you. With you. Yeah. Was, we that's what I was going to say. That was, that was my yeah. thought of him. Yeah. So he's pretty moody, though. So it's, he's a hard read. But we were co-managers of a softball team, or uh, sorry, a wiffle ball team for Kerry Woods Charity on Wrigley Field. And so I'm okay. thinking I'll do this quick interview with him. I tell him it'll be easy. He's kind of grumpy. And I start with something that I think is a softball that like hopefully he'll find interesting, but also won't be annoyed by. And I said something like, you know, you grew up around here, you're a massive Cubs fan. How cool is it to like get to play on Wrigley Field? And he was like, that's what you're going to go with. And then just walked away. And I was like, all right, see ya. <laughs> so, was he joking? No, he was dead serious. He didn't want to do the interview in the first place. And then he was like, fine, better be good. And then I asked and he was like, that's what you're going with. And then he left. I was like, all right. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. That's the most uncomfortable thing. Like, honestly, <laughs> I just had this conversation with someone because the thing about our jobs that I think is the thing that gives me the most anxiety is like, if you are dealing with someone directly and you're just, whether you're trying to get time for an interview or whatever it is, that interaction sometimes, you know, like you, I don't, you don't want to be a pain in the butt, right? right. You don't want to be like, certainly not disrespectful, but sometimes that gets like, it keeps me up at night, right? Like I just had the conversation with someone who was not really responding. And that person was like, I hope that you didn't take offense to me ignoring you. And I said, listen, no. And actually it helps me to talk this out. I was like, right. you need to understand though, that like it's a mutual respect. And as long as you are responding, we're good. But just know right. that. Like I just, so anyway, with the Bill Norris story, it's like, I totally feel that because I feel like, <laughs> right. You're like, well, what, well, what then? What do you want me yeah. to ask you? How, what yeah. about Bob? 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, and, um, and he's a he's a quirky guy, so I could have asked something super weird, and maybe he would have been into it in that moment, or right. he would have been like, "That this isn't a joke." Or I could have asked something super serious, and he could have been like, "That's a boring question." Either way, I probably wasn't going to win on that day, but that's why he right. would be a great guest, or it would be just a terrifying forty five minutes of just like, "Uh, I messed up again." <laughs> so, well, I think that's it. I think he's the one. I think that's it. All right, I'm going to put that out there in the universe it. then. We're, and I'm going to hope I, I, I get him on a happy you. day. We're going to champion him. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lindsay, for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, go take a nap. Uh, you need to catch up on your sleep. I will. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. And I can't wait to hang out with you at some juncture soon. Yeah, I know for sure. That's what she said. It was awesome catching up with Lindsay Zarniak. Stay tuned because there's a special bonus part of the podcast where I catch up with another former ESPNer to find out what he's up to and talk all about the Nats. Stay tuned. Looking for another great ESPN podcast? Then check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week, Julie and Lynn are joined by basketball superstar Tamika Ketchings, who played at the University of Tennessee, is a WNBA champion, and a four-time Olympic gold medalist. Fun fact, I once blocked Tamika Ketchings at the free throw line, took the ball down to the other basket, and made a layup, and that is the only time I ever did anything good while playing against Tamika Ketchings. In the podcast, Tamika talks about how she turned a hearing disability into a superpower, and share stories of playing for the legendary Pat Summit. Be sure to download Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. Julie says she'll give you a donut if you do. That's what she said. I'm Reese Waters, and my dilemma is I've been dating my girlfriend for a couple years now, and we're engaged. And when I say we're engaged, I mean we've spoken about the idea of getting married, and we both agreed that we want to get married. Doesn't that mean you're engaged? No. Society says I got to do some big grand proposal and with a ring and all this other stuff. And I'm like, why am I doing all of that when we both have agreed that we're going to get married? What, what is the point of doing that when we've already said it's, it's just a formality at that point? Am I somewhat how obligated by societal conventions to go through with this grand gesture when we both have agreed that we're getting married? That means we're engaged. Right. So, Reese, listen, one part of me wants to say, yeah, you're totally right. Why do we require this elaborate asking when you've already both just chatted and decided that you're getting engaged? Why do we demand that you go out and buy the ring, not even knowing necessarily what kind of ring she wants? Maybe if you haven't talked about that so that you can surprise her when she won't be surprised because you've already talked about it. So, yeah, I get that. In fact, my parents got engaged while my dad was ironing a shirt for work. And he said across the room to my mom, we should probably get married. And she said, yeah. And a friend of mine got engaged when he and his longtime girlfriend were talking about what happened next. Would they have kids? Would they get married? What would they do? They decided, sure, we should probably get married. And then they brought out their calendars and started finding a date that might work for both of their jobs. Right. So it ain't always some magical romantic thing. That being said. You got to get a read on that lady of yours because you might think you're engaged and you might think that she agreed to marry you and you might think that that's all you need, but she might be thinking something else. And even though I am not traditional and I did not take my husband's last name when we got married and I'm totally cool with bucking tradition, you better bet your ass I wanted him on a knee with a ring surprising me and that's when we were engaged. So... Tread carefully, my friend. If you, in fact, do want to marry this lady, find out real quick whether she's expecting that. And if she is, doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not, or whether it's right or not, or whether it's 2019 and we should have moved beyond these things, just go and buy a ring and do it. The commish has spoken.
Super excited to have Reese Waters back on the podcast. We won't go through all of the life story. You can find the previous episode of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, where I chatted with Reese about from where he matriculated and how he became who he is. But I want to catch up because uh, you are another former ESPNer, along with Lindsay Zarniak, who's now in the D.C. area, and, of course, a Nats fan who is celebrating what it's like to be on top. Uh, you posted a great meme of a kid on a swing set, happily swinging, listed uh, underneath <laughs> as the Nationals, Capitals, and Mystics, who are all champions recently. And then in the background, on fire, uh, is a, a big a big bunch of trees that represent the Redskins and the Wizards. So um, before we get to what it actually feels like for your teams to do well, which I'm sure is a novelty for you, let's talk about what you've been up to since uh, you left ESPN. So, so give well, actually, us a recap. And a, and a- an addendum to that meme is people said the fact that DC United wasn't on the meme at all is perfectly representative of the <laughs> DC sports fan psyche. And at the time, they were doing extremely well before they melted down in the playoffs. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm down here in DC, and I feel like this is basically a retirement community for XPNers, uh, XESPNers. Uh, Darren Haynes is here. He's at, he's at my same station. And, uh, you know, we're all running into each other all the time. So, you know, just in, in between bingo and, and filing our little local reports and whatnot. So uh, I came down here. I got the opportunity to um, to anchor, and I use that term loosely, the morning news for WSA9, which is a CBS affiliate here in Washington, D.C. And I say I use that term loosely because with my past being in, in, in stand-up comedy, they wanted to utilize that. And so the idea of the show is almost like if you were to take the evening news and the late night show, uh, you know, the tonight show and merge it into one show. That's kind of what we're, nice. what we're trying to do in the morning. And it's been pretty cool. I mean, when I don't, when I don't make some sort of uh, critical blog because I'm uh, tossing to uh, a horrific crime while wearing a costume, which happened last <laughs> Halloween. I, I was Prince Hakeem and I had to talk to some violence that happened. Uh, so when, 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 the, when that awkwardness doesn't occur, it's, it's a great time. It's, it's, it's a That's what I was fun. immediately going to ask is, are there times when it's hard to balance? If you feel like you're about to end up on uh, that the John Oliver where he says, and now this, and then they show like awkward moments in the news where people just didn't understand the tone that they were supposed to have for the story that was coming up. Pretty much. And I kind of, you know, it's very, it's, it's very awkward if you're there in the studio watching the transitions from serious stories to joking stories, because you really have to turn on a dime. Uh, but part of what I've tried to challenge myself to do is, and, and most comedians try and challenge themselves to do is to find some sort of, uh, through line and some sort of commentary that's connected to your persona and how you would react to this particular story. So obviously uh, I'm not going to react to every story with uh, a one liner, you know, or, or anything like that, but I might have some, some kind of deeper comment to make about it, which underlying all of the comedy that's really there all the time anyway. So it's kind of really challenged me to flex and, 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 grow my my comedy muscles and also really challenge my thought process into you know am i what am i really trying to say in this particular moment am i saying it in the most efficient way possible and so in that way it's been it's been really incredible and i can say that 
I've never had people approach me after trashing the Redskins on Sports <laughs> Center or after doing a stand-up bit and say, hey, man, I love what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. You, I really feel connected to you. You inspire me. That, like, those are the kind of things that people say to me in, in doing the news, and I never, I've never had people react to anything that I've done in a more powerful way than that. And, and obviously it's, it's even more significant that it's people from uh, Prince George's County, from D.C., from Arlington, Alexandria, Virginia. You know, it's people from home that I feel like I'm uh, allowing to connect to me in that way. So that part has been really cool. Yeah, that's something that's, I think, kind of unique to local news or, or, or um, regional programming like that is your audience are going to be there every day. Like that's, that's how they, that, that's how they stay in touch with their community. Um, and it's also allowed you to sort of uh, dabble outside of that show. You've been doing a lot of other stuff. Tell me about the red carpet for Dave Chappelle's Mark Twain prize. So, you know, it's always fun to be the least funny person in the building. That's always, <laughs> that's always uh, a trip. I wouldn't I'm, know. Uh, I, I'm saying that. Well, no, you wouldn't know, but you because you you always uh, you always brought it whenever I was around you. But you know, I'm I'm there, and it's like it's Dave Chappelle, and it's first of all, uh, let's list the people that didn't get a chance to speak that were just in the audience. It was Chris Tucker, it was uh, George Lopez, it was Chance the Rapper. I mean, it was, it was, it was a who's who that didn't even get a chance to, to get out there and speak. And then the people that are on the, on, you know, actually on the program is like Sarah Silverman. Oh, Jeff Ross was one of the people who wasn't even on the program, but Sarah Silverman, there's Tiffany Haddish, there's uh, John, uh, John Stewart and uh, Neil Brennan. And uh, it, it was really surreal. Like one of the things I told the folks at the Kennedy center is that, uh, I've never felt so motivated to do comedy and motivated to quit comedy at the exact same time because <laughs> it was a lot of conversation about the importance of comedy, especially in today's day and age and, and, and not only in connecting people and distracting people, but, but telling truths and, and, and being yeah. unabashed and doing that. And that's one of the things that Dave did. And so a lot of it was heralding, the idea of comedy and the purpose of comedy. Um, and then at the same time, it was this community of comedians that had all kind of grown up together. Sarah Silverman tells a story about her doing a, a show with Dave when he was 19 and she came down from New York and she was the feature and he was the anchor. And afterwards they went and grabbed a bite to eat while they while the headliners performing. Like, like all these really cool kind of like behind the scenes uh, stories that are being told. And, and me, even as a fellow comedian, almost also felt like an outsider, like, like wanted to get into this club, like this, this, this echelon of, of, of great performers. I'll also say that my respect, first of all, I, I came in with the utmost respect for just about everybody there, but John Stewart, is so funny and so yeah. quick on the red carpet. I literally ask him, I go, so what is something we would be surprised to find out about Dave Chappelle without missing a beat? He goes, he's white. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Like literally without that, he, he was so funny. And I go, you know what? People, people probably, 
I, you know, everybody loves John Stewart, but I'm like, I don't think you have any idea how absolutely brilliant this man is when you yeah. see him like just work and, and react instant, instantly like that. We were just talking to Lindsay Zarniak and I said, you know, Bill Murray's a tough one because you never know what mood you're going to get. And he's either hilarious or impossible. Was there anyone on that red carpet that made it tough for you or that you had trouble playing off of? Because that's another thing. If you're interviewing some of the most hilarious people in the world, you kind of have to be the straight man, which is probably tough for someone who's used to being the comedian. You know what? That's actually a really fantastic point because I'm wanting to play with them, right? I'm wanting to be different than your typical uh, straight host because I'm a comedian. In a lot of respects, I feel like that's why the Kennedy Center actually brought me in to do that. At the same token, it's not about me, and I'm supposed to be setting them up. And so that was a very, very hard uh, needle to thread. I think that's what you say, right? Needle to thread? Yeah, nailed it. Um, The really hard one, I think, was Tiffany Haddish because – she has such a big personality and such a big persona and she brought it. And I was really caught between um, playing along with her or just keeping her going. And so she's like, she's such a, she's such a kind of tour de force on her own that like, I kind of just wanted to do the Homer Simpson meme and just back into the bushes and just be like, (laughs) you know what, y'all, she got it. Just let her, let her, let her do her. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really tough. And when I did uh, interview Bill Murray on on a rooftop for a Cubs thing, I did feel like, okay, Spain, stop trying to be funny. Just like let him do his thing. And that's 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 really hard to do. Um, How did you how did you get uh, tabbed for that award? Or do do you know um, someone at the Kennedy Center or or what what uh, got you that gig? Because that's probably a thrill for you. It was it was an awesome. uh, It was an awesome thrill for me. I can say that I was, I had it on my calendar for like a month and I was equal parts excited and terrified of it, <laughs> of, of, of going down there and actually uh, doing it and being, and being around all these people. So I, I've been cultivating a relationship with the Kennedy Center through some shows that I pitched them. So when I first moved to DC, uh, I, I went there and met with uh, this guy, uh, Matthew Weiner, who's, who's handling their comedy programming and the Kennedy Center in addition to expanding, because they just launched this uh, secondary space called The Reach, which is really cool, and they're going to have a, uh, a bunch of different kinds of programming in there in addition to what they normally offer at the Kennedy Center. So, but they, they've been trying to connect in a different way with the community and offer stand-up shows and offer you know, hip-hop karaoke and do open nice. mics and, and bring in um, people that normally wouldn't you know, think of taking their talents to the Kennedy center and, and they've been trying to open that up. And so and one of the ways of doing that, I pitched them this show, which was the idea of it was uh, me and another comedian doing sets. And then afterwards, like deconstructing those sets and talking about those sets. And they called it say what with Reese waters. And we did a string of them. And we had a bunch of my friends come down from New York and do it. We, you know, we had uh, my girl, Yamanika, we had Giannis Papas come do it. We had, um, uh, Gondelman come down from uh, Jesus and Mara. We had a, a bunch of people do it. As a part of the reach um, kind of extravaganza, we brought in Pat Oswalt, or they brought in Pat Oswalt. And so I got a chance to sit down and do a set with him and deconstruct his set. And so through doing those shows, I've kind of grown my relationship with the Kennedy Center. So they have, they asked me, you know, would I be open to doing uh, red carpet for the Mark Twain prize. And I said, you know, I, I, 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would love, yeah. Um, can I also like get a do over in case it doesn't work out and just be a, a spectator? That's really what I want to ask. Can I do it? But then you also like have somebody else like, you know, just in case is that right? But um, they were like, you know, we would love for you to do it. And, and they were super supportive and, and all the feedback I got was great. So I hope I didn't get in the way. Evidently, I didn't get in the way of everybody else's comedic genius. I, I escaped unscathed. So also tell me about those videos that you're doing on Instagram. I noticed that I mean, you always used to do these funny short clips, but you've started doing these like uh, sort of half of the screen is your face and half of them is some sort of uh, screenshot of a news item. Uh, what's your goal there? Um, or, or, or why, why, why do you want to have some of those? A lot of them are about social issues and stuff like that. That's funny. You sound like a lot of people might like, what, so what is this? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what, why are you doing, are they paying you to do this? Like, what is, uh, so I think the idea is that I wanted to get back to what I was about when I started. So, you know, I started out as a, as a stand-up, and I wasn't a sports comedian. I was just a comedian, uh, but had a, a ton to say about sports. And so I ended up taking this hard left in my career in 2012, 2013, when we did uh, – actually, no, before that, 2010, when I did the, uh, the Versus Hockey Show, which, which eventually led to Unite, which eventually led to uh, doing SportsCenter and, and working with folks like you – so I did that hard turn and that took me away from general stand-up and general, you know, societal kinds of commentary. And all of a sudden now with my, my freedom, uh, which is the best way of, of describing the layoff, uh, <laughs> I was able to like get back to, you know what, I, I kind of want to talk about these things and I kind of want to allow my voice to be heard. How do I package it? Well, the only way I really knew how to package anything was in the, you know, in these clips, which is like the way that I was doing sports commentary. So I said, if I can try and do regular commentary in the way I'm doing sports commentary, then, uh, you know, that to me was the most comfortable way I knew to try and get this stuff out. And so I get a lot of help from the station in terms of finding stories and finding angles on stories. And so they've been super helpful and super, super supportive of me doing it. That's and awesome. You know, once upon a time, I, I know we would talk about what ultimately we wanted to do. And I remember we had that. Uh, I think I think we were doing uh, his and hers. We were doing Michael and Jamel's podcast together, and we were talking about kind of what the end game was. And for a long time, it was a sports show, and now it's not. Like now, it's 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 a show where I can kind of get get in and dig in into these kinds of issues and topics. I kind of do it a little bit in the morning, but you know, you don't have but so much time. Like you, right. you know, you can't, we don't do deep dives in the morning because you really are just trying to get the weather and the traffic and, and the headlines and get out the door. So we, we can't exhaust too much time of that in the morning. But I think the end game is to try and find a vehicle where I can, I can really have those deeper conversations and, and hopefully those videos have increased my credibility in those areas. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what it's like for you to be in D.C. Uh, and actually have your teams win. The Capitals won, the Nats won. 
Uh, give us a thought on what it's like when your identity, especially of late, has sort of been about the futility of the teams that surround you and now suddenly being like, all right, Mystics won, Caps won, Nats won. Like, we're winners over here. The reminder of the Washington football team will always be like they're like a specter in the darkness. But uh, talk about the winning. Yeah, you know what's funny? Somebody told me because I, I, I posted that meme uh, of the swing and somebody said, you know how traumatized a fan base is when they can't handle winning without mentioning <laughs> the losing? And that's right. 100% true. You know, how many memes were there that involved Dan Snyder looking out the window like Squidward from SpongeBob, watching all the rest of us uh, celebrate and all excited? Uh, it has been really an incredible trip. And, and I, can def- I can speak to the Capitals because, you know, the Capitals was the first title we'd won outside of D.C. United. That was the first title we'd won since the Mark Rippon, uh, the Mark Rippon team in 91, 92. And it, so it had been that long since we had won a championship. And I, I actually have jokes about it because I'm like, you, you watch the parade and the celebration for the Capitals and you see all these old black people out there crying. You know you never watch hockey. I know you never watch a bit of hockey. All that is is the pain of watching the Redskins and Wizards for years just leaving the body. That's how difficult it was. And you know what else I find so funny, Sarah, is all of a sudden, you know, because for years and years, uh, the Redskins would be terrible and they would still sell out. And that was kind of their, that was what they fell back on was that we still have, you know, we're still this, this, venerated franchise and and you know people still come to the game well after the capitals won that next season the bottom really fell out and they had to start covering seats and opposing fans were taking over the game i remember going to a colts game the colts from indianapolis and seeing the colts fans take over fedex field and that was the season right after the capitals had won so it was almost like we had experienced success and all of a sudden, we're not willing to go back to the terrible treatment that we're used to having during football season. Like, we finally had a good, successful relationship. We're like, we're not taking that stuff no more, Dan Snyder. You take your old free agents and your lies on down the road. Your stuff is going to be out on the corner. And that's exactly how we treated this team ever since the Capitals won. And, and it's gotten progressively worse. And I can't imagine how, how much worse things will get now that the Nationals have won. So it, it's, it's been really incredible to see just how alive this fan base can can get and can be and can feel because it's been so long since since those things have been activated. I mean, my own my own family. I can't remember the last time we sat around and had a conversation about the Capitals or the Nationals before the last couple of years. But my mom came in to the city early decked out in red because she wanted to be there for the celebration <laughs> for the Nationals. So, that that's I mean, awesome. that's, that's, that's what they've done for us. You know, what you said is so true. It's sort of that rising tide lifts all boats. Like, once most a couple of your teams are good, you start to look around at the trash ones. Like, all right, we're done with this. Like, we're all going to be good now. And it works out for a little while until you're like, I don't know, Chicago, and you have no nice things. And then you realize that you, you, you're, like, spoiled. And you look around, and you haven't had a single team with a playoff win in the calendar year. And instead of just being like, shrug, I guess that's who we are. You're like, this is not okay. We want stuff. We're, we're supposed you know- be relevant. You know what, Sarah? I can't feel bad for you uh, because of your treatment of Jay Cutler. It's kind of like... <laughs> hey, old... I was mostly on his side. 
you know, it, it, until you do right by Jay Cutler, Chicago, everything you do is going to fail. Trademark, color purple, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> Y'all need to make that right. <laughs> I think we'll end on that note. Hey, Reese, awesome to catch up. Uh, love seeing you do such big things, and uh, hopefully we'll get to hang soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and you're still my favorite person at oh, the Worldwide Leader. Shucks. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Sarah. That's what she said. Check out our brand new podcast, ESPN Daily, hosted by the great Mina Kimes. Monday through Friday, she'll take a look at the most interesting stories at ESPN in just 20 minutes. Listen and subscribe now to ESPN Daily, wherever you find your podcasts. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, pumpkin puree. Now, you can't see me, but I just did the air quotes around pumpkin. Why? Well, let me tell you a tale. It's a tale of lies. I whipped up a little homemade pumpkin butter for some pasta sauce the other night, cooking for a little dinner party I was throwing, and I shared some of the cooking process on my Insta story, at Spain2323 on Instagram. And it's a recurring segment I like to call Get Back in the Kitchen with Spain. You get it. Anyway, my friend Bamai writes me one line on Insta that shook my world. Quote, did you know canned pumpkin is squash? Say what now? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Canned pumpkin isn't pumpkin, and they can put on the can 100% pumpkin? Lies! Damned lies! I was upset by this, so I did a little research, and it turns out it's not so simple. They're not lying and giving you squash but calling it pumpkin. It's even worse. It's actually that the term pumpkin has no botanical meaning. They're actually all squash. And this Dickinson variety of squash that they developed specifically some company called Libby's that is apparently responsible for 85% of canned pumpkin pie filling. They made their own variety called the Dickinson, and it's somehow considered both a squash and a pumpkin because, as I just said, apparently pumpkin means nothing. And I guess in the end, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It tastes delicious. But there's something about thinking that you're eating that orange jack-o'-lantern thing that makes you think of Halloween and Thanksgiving and this time of year, but instead you're just eating a bastard cousin of a butternut squash. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. All you suckers out there are drinking a squash-spiced latte. Hashtag SSL season. Enjoy. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Find That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Subscribe, rate, review, leave the dilemma in your review, and maybe I'll talk about it on the show. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.